Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Rare diseases are a challenge for lots of reasons, because when you have such a small population group, it can be difficult to recruit enough people to even begin to formulate a really effective study. And for most big companies, having small patient populations means there's not a lot of potential consumers for a therapeutic that you would develop. And the cost of R&D is phenomenal, right? It's really high cost. So companies are looking at de-risking the approach to return on investment. And so rare diseases tend to fall off the radar and sometimes have been taken up by small companies that we try to promote here on Talking Biotech because the solutions are usually pretty innovative. And and there's a few examples of that in the archive. But one of the big problems, as I mentioned, is this potential for return on investment, which causes companies to have to do a lot of market analysis and understand what is the potential return for this huge R&D risk that we're taking. But what if there was a different model? What if the goal wasn't necessarily taking care of shareholders and rather taking care of patients? And could a nonprofit model of biotechnology actually be effective? And that's what we'll explore today, looking at the business side of such a model, as well as some of the products in the pipeline. We're speaking with Dr. Ashley Winslow, and she's the CEO and CSO of Adelia Therapeutics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Winslow. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I always like calling you Dr. Winslow because I can remember when you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) A long time ago. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. It's kind of funny. I was was thinking about this now. You, You worked in the lab when? I think it was... Uh, it was early 2000s, about 2003 is maybe when I started, 2004. Yeah, somewhere in there. And and I was I was standing in front of my class yesterday teaching and thinking, when I started teaching at the university, these folks weren't born yet. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, then, and then seeing you move up through the ranks and things and now being a really senior person at a company, you know, I'm going to grow gray hair because of it. But just for what it's worth, Dr. Winslow was an undergraduate in my laboratory. She did a lot of really nice work at identifying genes that controlled flowering processes in, in strawberry and isolated lots of the regulators for the first time that later would play key roles. So good, good stuff back then. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was it, that was the the start of my scientific career. It's an invaluable experience. I really am grateful. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I am too. I mean, I'm I'm grateful for for you. You were you were probably the fifth of now 130 undergraduates to move through the program. So that's pretty wow. cool. <laughs> that's amazing. It really is. So let's talk about what you're doing at Odelia. What what does Odelia or Odelia mean? That's my um, first question. No, it's it's a good question. We get it a lot a lot of different pronunciations. So Odelia came out of actually our founder story. So we, maybe I'll I'll start there and tell you just a little bit about our founder story because it's interesting. We have two founders. One is a a father of two kids with a rare disorder. 
and he came from the business world, a successful e-commerce business. And so no, no scientific training, but had two children with a rare disorder. And as many rare disease parents go about this, thrown and thrust into this world of science and trying to grapple at what was going on. And then our other founder, scientist by training, he, he comes out of Mass Pioneer Institute in Boston and really involved in the development of what we call AAV capsids or, or delivery systems for gene therapy. So, so parent scientists kind of thrust into working together in the rare disease world. They were, they were frustrated with the researcher not being able to move his science, his promising therapeutics forward due to the, the frustrations and the funding model in that system. We can go into that more detail. And this father frustrated by the fact that we have the science now to deliver therapeutics to people suffering from rare diseases. But again, the business model was failing in, in that respect. So the two of these um, folks came together and that Scott Dorfman is our um, rare disease dad, e-commerce businessman by training. And Luke Vandenberg is our researcher from the AAV world. And Luke and Scott just started talking about how could we do better? How can we change the system? And the idea for a nonprofit biotech came about. And that was basically the birth of Odelia Therapeutics. And Scott had two children with Usher syndrome, right? He still has two children with Usher syndrome. And the, the biggest component that becomes debilitating later on that's still untreated is the vision loss. Usher syndrome is characterized by vestibular dysfunction, auditory dysfunction, and vision loss in adolescence. And the while the vestibular and auditory are, are big components, the auditory component is is highly treatable by cochlear implants. Not perfectly, but that, that makes a huge difference. It's the vision loss that becomes really debilitating and quite scary for a lot of patients and families. And so Scott started talking to Luke about how can we treat the vision loss in his kids and, and, and other patients out there. And Luke's specialty area was in vision loss. And so the, the early days of the company became a focus on vision loss. And they were talking about, what are we going to name this? And so somebody had given Luke, given his background in vision loss, a St. Odelia, I think it was a candle. And St. Odelia is patron saint of vision loss. So there's no religious aspect to the company, but they started talking about this. And it happened to be, I think, very kismet wise, uh, the, the patron saint day that they were in Luke's office talking about this that was sitting on the shelf. They're talking about vision loss. Scott is, it, it just thought this was, you know, interesting connections across the board. So I thought Odelia sounded great. And that is how we came to Odelia. <laughs> I never knew there was a patron saint for vision loss. Yes, yes. I did not either, but I think there might be one for everything out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, well let, let's talk more about this concept of rare, rare diseases. And I understand, you know, sure, there's rare diseases that pop up. But for a company, this has to be really a challenge because... You don't have the people to study or the organisms to study and at the same time, you know, a market for any therapeutics you develop. So why are rare diseases worthwhile to pursue? It, they are worthwhile because at the base, in my opinion, and I think a, a lot of a lot of folks out there, we should be developing therapeutics for the patients that need them. And so that means that is, is common disorders, like ca different cancers, Alzheimer's, 
down to rare genetic disorders, it, it, we shouldn't, this is an access problem at the end of the day, and it's access at the point of drug development. And so while we're working on these big, common, more common disorders, that, that, that work should continue, but the business model fails the smaller disorders where there's a much smaller patient population either. When you look at the, these numbers in the U.S. or globally, the return on investment that drives that business model becomes more challenging. But at the end of the day, we still have patients who have life-threatening disorders. Many of these genetic disorders affect, actually two-thirds of all rare diseases affect children. And 72% of rare diseases are genetic. And in a time of when we, we've started to develop the science to deliver, deliver genetic therapies, we now have the ability to start looking at these genetic diseases and treating them at the source. So I think from a, from a strategic point of view, outside of just the, the need of patients, we also, in the, when we're treating genetic diseases, get to work at some of the, the, the bleeding edge of technology. And so a lot of this early work on genetic therapies for rare diseases is actually leading the charge for developing that next generation of technologies as well. And a rare disease, like how do we define that as rare? So there's a few definitions. In the U.S., we define rare disease by there being fewer than 200,000 Americans affected. And that ends up being about 60 people per 100,000 people. The EU has a slight variation on that number, and they actually define it by that ratio, 50 people in 100,000. And I think WHO defines it as 65 people in 100,000. But you're all in the same type of arena, slight different way of counting. Yeah, it doesn't seem that rare, though. 50 50 in 100,000, like, you know, Gainesville, Florida is 100,000, well, Mm -hmm. 125,000 people. So that would suggest that you would have a 50-person patient population for study just in this rather medium-sized town. So it doesn't seem that rare. So is that really the kind of the attractive size of this, is that you do have opportunity to treat a substantial number of people with a less visible disease? Yeah, it's it depends on the disease. There's different aspects. So we've I've worked in some diseases that the the number can be and and, and Odelia actually works right now with a patient group on a disease that has 30 patients in the world, which is is quite rare. And you can see when you have 30 patients, pharma and and biotechs it have a hard time getting really interested in that. And so some of this starts to fall back on patient groups really driving the way. And that's a a lot of where we collaborate in the space a little bit differently. But when you look collectively across rare diseases, so you have those N of ones, we now call them one patient known worldwide. You have those 30 patients worldwide for another disorder that can walk up to much more common rare diseases. And there's examples of those, but you have a you have a wide spectrum and the business model doesn't fit for many of those we're starting to see interest in changing that business model and having that work for the more common but we're still struggling with those fewer but in totality if you look at the aggregate of rare diseases for for all people living with rare diseases that is actually one in 10 people in the US when they've done those um, calculations so if you talk about the social impact, the the health impact, there's a massive impact on society from leaving rare diseases untreated. 
And so there's that individual need, but there's that also that society, societal responsibility as well. And so is that a big part of your company to identify these rare disease groups and then maybe serve as a backbone that has the expertise to help them navigate drug discovery and, and, and regulation? Is that part of what, what your company does? Exactly. Yeah. So we have two sides of the company. We work very traditionally as a biotech, so the nonprofit biotech side of how we characterize ourselves. We have a pipeline. We have two gene therapies currently in development. We we each of those has partnerships, really strong ties to patient groups or the patient community, depending on how they're organized. But we also, on the other side of the company, work through what's called bridge solutions. And that's where we bring that expertise, our internal expertise, as well as the networks we work through to directly to groups working on their own pipelines. I'd say most of our collaborations have been with patient groups within that space who are driving their own drug development efforts. So they're inv- they're raising funds and they're investing in maybe academic-based research on trying to understand the biology of the disease, or discovering new therapeutics, sometimes that matures into a full-blown drug development effort. And sometimes they're building their own companies, which has just been truly amazing to see. But as you can imagine, if you're thrust into the world of rare diseases, you have a sick kid, let's say, and you have no background in science, this can be incredibly daunting. And so what we're trying to do is take our learnings and our expertise and our network and make that available to these parents, these patients, these families, these patient groups who start with very little understanding of that landscape because it's not their career training in making that available and making it accessible to those groups. That's really exciting. Kind of being the hub on the wheel where you're able to provide that backbone to support the efforts of these other groups. I mean, that's really a cool model. But the other side of this is that you kept mentioning nonprofit. And in the days of, you know, Wall Street, you know, loving biotechs and all this good stuff. Tell me more about the nonprofit nature of a biotech company. Yeah, so we are a 501c3. And so it's the basis of that really comes from the founder story that I, I spoke to early in early days. It's We have the science that technology to develop, you know, it's scientists have a hard time with the C word cures or curative, but we really are looking at having a massive impact on these diseases through genetic treatments. Some will call them a cure. And given the small patient population, we're fundamentally challenged when you look at that traditional business model by the return on investment, and it can be self-limiting. And so Scott and Luke, when they talked about this, discussed this in early days, they really thought in order to keep the mission focused on the science and advancing these technologies in the rare disease space, we had to be formatted as a nonprofit. And it's so that affords us a lot of advantages in the space to operate differently. So we have the ability to focus on three guiding principles. And that are three questions around each of our drugs and development. Are they safe? Are they effective? And do we have the available and appropriate technology to treat this disease? We don't have to go to that market assessment where a lot of programs begin and do the assessment on what's the market for this product. What can we sell it for? What's the potential return on investment? And 
don't get me wrong. I, I worked in big pharma and I, and I loved it. It was a wonderful experience and very eye-opening. There's nothing wrong with that thinking because it does drive a lot of innovation, but it has failed in the rare disease space as a model. So we there's a lot of different approaches that are starting to emerge. Our approach as a nonprofit allows us to focus at the core on safety, efficacy, and available technology, but it's also not without its challenges. As you can imagine, raising the capital from a nonprofit space to drive these programs forward can be challenging. So it, it's the financial model is is a little bit more challenging, especially in early days. But I do think we have a strategic roadmap where over time and we we, we are able to tackle that bigger challenge. I'm happy to talk about that in more detail if that's of interest as well. Well, well, it is of interest because it makes me think, all right, this is a great idea. I love, I'm sitting here thinking of ways that I could do this in plant breeding. You know, how do you do run it as a 501c3 where you can generate maybe something that can help a different market rather than a thousand acres? Maybe how do you just get small farms to have, be more profitable? You know, this, this is going through my head as we talk. So where does the capital come from to run the business? Yeah. So it's a good question. I, I'll talk to, um, I'll speak initially about the general concept. So we have three primary financial pillars. And I'll talk very transparently because I think about our financial situation. I think it helps others think through how to apply the model and how to think about it. Because there's things I would have loved to have known, you know, in earlier days that I feel like we have a better understanding at the stage we're at now. So we were founded in 2017, really got running, I would say 2018, 2019 is when I joined and our, th- our three pillars today are licensing or what I call a bigger bucket business revenue. And I'll come back to that in a second. Traditional philanthropy donations. And, and, and we, can, we can talk about that as well. And then under Bridge Solutions, we structure that as a fee for service. Right now, that's heavily subsidized when we work with nonprofits and patient groups. We're actually operating under, under the, the real rate. And we're hoping over time that our our fee-for-service structure with for-profits can help underpin and subsidize that piece so we can continue to work with nonprofits and other patient groups um, at an accessible price point. With regard to our early days, so in, in 2019, we did have a licensing deal with a company at, at that point that, that gave us our initial runway. And that's important for, for a nonprofit when you start to walk into the space, when you're a new entity and you're in that startup phase, you operate in many ways, just like any other startup in the space. You have to have ideally an initial revenue source while you're working on the sustainability model. And so for nonprofits, oftentimes that is through driving philanthropy donations, maybe early grants. We had the ability, we were founded, we were seeded with some intellectual property coming out of Luke's lab. And so we had the ability to take that forward with our first program and license that with biotech and pharma. And that's model, still a model we subsist on. It, it gave us that initial licensing revenue, gave us our initial runway and allowed us that ability to have the revenue to build a sustainable model, which we're still working on. It, it, it is a challenge for nonprofits because you are, you're challenged with convincing people that your mission is truly worth investing in, but in a way that they're not, that society is going to gain from it, not necessarily the individual in a financial way. And so that's a very different prospect. We, I think the early 
early days of Odelia right now, what we're focused on and what we're starting to emerge out of is the, the model is the hope that we can de-risk our rare disease programs to a stage that we can attract investment from the traditional biotech pharma or, or VC landscape and get them interested in working on rare disease and committed. Because once you move into clinical trials, they're incredibly expensive. Now, what our hope is, is that one day we are at a, a, a point that we can bring those programs forward and not reliant on that landscape. Uh, but anywhere we can attract anyone to work in rare diseases, we're not opposed to, to for-profits working in this space. We want to get them interested in it, but we also want to build a different business models when that doesn't work. But our hope is one day that we can get to a sustainable place where we have enough funds to invest in these programs, to take them through the very expensive clinical trial to approval. And I think we have ways of getting there. So early days, licensing revenue as a potential, we stay tied to our programs to ensure that they're being stewarded properly. And that if the program is ever jettisoned or stalled, it comes back to us and we can ensure it keeps moving forward, which is a big problem, as you know, in, in, in pharma. But there are now incentive programs, uh, business incentives through different government systems. Um, California has a great one through CIRM, and that's C-I-R-M, and I, I, I'm blanking on the full acronym at this point in time, but they give funding um, for California entities to fund these early stage programs and companies and clinical trials. And so we're starting to look at, at those types of programs. There's also orphan drug designation and rare pediatric disease designations, which our first asset, their gene therapy and development does have that designation. When you go to the point of approval, you get what's called a priority review voucher. And the value of that ranges. If you wanted to turn around and sell it, which you can, from about 80 million to 110 million. So you can start to see if we can bring these programs into that longer phase and fund them to that longer phase, there starts to be, there start to be ways that we can bring money back into the early side of the company and invest in our next stage of programs. But the, there's a there's a longer, you know, runway to to walking that walk and it's it's a longer term goal. And maybe just kind of a personal point here is you you are CSO at other companies. You've worked in kind of the academic corporate straddling there for a long time. And was that what attracted you to Odelia? Was this for this non-for-profit model? Yeah, I've I would say the the thread that kind of drew me into Odelia is I've worked in the rare disease space for a, a long time. I've worked in the the world of looking at genetic underpinnings of disease and how and asking the question of how do we develop that into better therapeutics that naturally segues into rare diseases because 72% of rare diseases are genetic and this has really been the test bed for these genetic technologies which has has been really interesting to see up front and in center and I've worked in academia like I said pharma worked in between I worked with a lot of patient groups as well and I think the I think the underlying kind of guiding principle for me also is just I can't resist a challenge and seeing and working with a lot of these patient groups and a lot of these programs in pharma and seeing them not stalled because of the science, but stalled because of the business model 
it was, it was, it's a challenge that was hard for me to resist. It, it, it's been incredibly inspiring and fun to, to, to come up against this challenge and try to figure out how do we do this differently and can we make this work and, and, and how do we get people excited about it? But it, we're really starting to see that momentum grow and, and it's, it's incredibly rewarding, but it will continue to be a challenge. I think it, it but if if you thrive on challenges, I encourage anyone to think a little bit differently and outside the box and challenge that traditional business model where it falls short. It, it's It's been an incredible experience. Well, that's really cool. So we'll talk a little bit more about challenges in Dr. Ashley Winslow on the other side of the break. This is Collaborate's Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ashley Winslow. She's the CEO and CSO of Adelia Therapeutics. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ashley Winslow. She's the CEO and CSO of Odelia Therapeutics. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the for the non-for-profit, <laughs> almost got that backwards, the non-for-profit nature of, of her company and some of the unique challenges. But the second half, I'd really like to focus on the technologies themselves and specifically the pipeline and, and some of the solutions that you're working on. But you mentioned before challenges, and it really brought to mind something I haven't thought about in a long time, was when you were going from undergraduate at University of Florida to PhD, and you had your sights set on Cambridge in the UK and a certain lab to, to work with. Um, to, to work on aspects of autophagy and, and Alzheimer's disease. And you were on fire about this. And you actually went there without an assistantship because they didn't, he was, you know, didn't have one to offer at the time. And you basically said, I'm going to go make this work. <laughs> and then four <laughs> years later, I got a bound copy of your dissertation in the mail. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> someone who, someone who is not averse to making it work and, and bringing along some success. So it just kind of came to mind now. I still have your dissertation, by the way. Oh, lovely. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> so so let, let's dive in and talk about the actual technologies themselves and what's being done. It sounds to me like you're doing a, that these are current therapies are focusing on uh, disorders of the eye and gene therapy solutions. Is there a reason, and this has been true, I guess, with other gene therapy solutions in eye disorders, typically metabolic disorders of retinal cells. And why is, why is the eye particularly amenable for these kinds of gene therapy applications? Good question. And it, it's, the, you know, be, besides the, the initial success with Luxterna, so that's the first approved gene therapy or in vivo gene therapy, there's kind of a, a, a difference there between ex vivo and in vivo. So this is direct genetic gene delivery into the eye. It, so the, the initial success, I think, success for success and interest. And so that drives a lot of people to the field saying, hey, you know, look, look over there, that person can do it. I, you know, I can too. They've laid the, the path. Outside of that, the, the eye really, it has some very unique characteristics uh, that 
lend itself to gene therapy from a scientific biological perspective. It's relatively separate from the rest of the body. So when you deliver something into the blood, it goes everywhere. That's the point of blood is to, to get a lot of different places very quickly. So when you're trying to deliver gene therapies systemically, it can be a challenge for a few reasons because you have to deliver large doses and that becomes a manufacturing problem and a cost problem. Gene therapies are, are pretty costly in the spectrum of manufacturing to develop. So smaller doses are ideal. And the eye, given it's relatively isolated from the rest of the body behind different barrier systems, becomes a very, very small organ to deliver effective and therapeutic levels, doses of gene therapies too. So there's a, there's a cost perspective, but there's also an immunological perspective. When, when the early days of gene therapy, they're, they're, and there still continues to be, there are immunological effects you have to be mindful of and, and monitor for. These are experimental technologies in the initial days of testing. So especially the first time we start introducing these into patients in a phase one trial, there's a, a lot of interest in understanding, is there an immunological response? And so when you have an isolated organ like the eye, instead of that systemic example of delivering to the blood, you can limit some of the effects if there's an immunological response to one organ system, to one area. It also, higher doses often drive larger immunological responses. So that isolated nature of the eye, it, it allows access, easier access than let's say when we're doing gene therapies for the brain, which worked in that area. And that can be a real challenge. Brain is somewhat isolated behind the blood brain barrier, but you can't access all parts of the brain very easily. The eyes relatively accessible we can visualize it as well through some some of the, the ophthalmological technologies we have. We can sometimes look at the direct effects on and monitor, you know, retinal cell layers. We can look at those in a in a human patient. We 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 don't have to to wait for them to to pass away or succumb to a disease where we do some areas to really look at the direct effects. Sometimes we can monitor those in real time. So. It, it's an access advantage really with the eye. And let's talk about some of the diseases that you're working with. So what is Leber congenital amaurosis? So this is an early blinding disorder. And so usually LCA, as we call it for short, is a group of different genetic disorders. So we are specifically working on LCA6. And that links to, is really tied to mutations in the RP group one gene. So LCAs generally as a class of diseases affect children very young. LCA6, many of the patients we work with, they had affected vision often from birth. So oftentimes patients, parents, excuse me, will realize this in the first few weeks. It really starts to become measurable later on when you have fully developed vision in babies that the, the doctor really starts to to be able to see that there's a problem. The parents usually have recognized this for a while, that the, their child's not tracking when, when they should. And that's a big milestone component that parents look at and then, um, or look for 
or maybe their eyes start to kind of go back and forth a lot, something called nystagmus. And so there starts to be unusual behavior. Oftentimes these these children do have a formal diagnosis by the age of one or at least before the age of three years old. And it's, there is a plateau phase with the progression of LCA. So severe vision loss early on, and then sometimes that can be steady state for a while, but there might be some retained visual function, maybe central vision is retained. And then oftentimes in adolescence, this starts to drop off again. So this is, we do think that this phase, there's a long phase in a pediatric population that's highly treatable. And that may even go into young adulthood. But just for uh, clarity, so RPGRP1 mutations do track with three diagnoses, usually LCA6, CORD13, and then sometimes juvenile retinitis pigmentosa. And so you have that, that interesting biology where one set of mutations is recessive. So you would have homozygous or compound heterozygous two mutations that RPGRP1 gene can track with slightly different manifestations. So we, we've had a really interesting layering of your diagnostic practice. Maybe different ophthalmologists see things slightly differently and call it a different thing, or, or, may, or truly we do think some of the biology lends itself to a later onset of this vision decline. Um, so... Yeah, so this is uh, so this is maybe something I don't understand about this. So did you say LCA LCA six? There is other versions of this also potentially. So other, and I don't know this for sure. So this gene that is being targeted here, the mutation that's occurring, is happening in what gene? RP grip one. RPGRIP one. Okay, RPGRIP one. RP grip one, and has other gene therapy been done for other states? Is this the same disease that occurs in Briard dogs? So there, interestingly, there ends up being a lot of, mostly I would say canine models. Yeah. Dog models for vision loss. And I think that, I think largely much of that is due to inbreeding and also just because pet lovers love their dogs so much that they, you know, take them to the doctor and, and, and say, you know, help me figure out what this is. So you end up with because of these breeding programs, highlighting some of these. So there are there are RP group one canine models, and I can't remember exactly what breed. I think there might be two. Yeah, it just was something. I'm doing kind of a deep dive here for for going actually go back quite a bit. That I'm kind of remembering this that there were a number of gene therapies that were proposed for different blindnesses that occurred that were maybe in the RP65 gene that were the gene that was mm-hmm. the gene that catalyzed the conversion of the beta carotene to pro vitamin A with that cleavage down the center. And so this was this goes back a ways in my brain, but it, it sounded really familiar as you were speaking about it. So this is a different gene than RP65. Yes, yeah. Uh, RP65 does cause a form of LCA, but it's a different number and and I don't, I'd have to look and see what number we're up to, but we're in the teens at least of different LCAs, all underpinned by a different genetic mutation, but, a, but similar, somewhat similar manifestation and how the, the patient, how young they might be or the progression, not all exactly the same, but within the same umbrella group. Yeah, that, that, that's, that was a deep dive in my brain. Jeez, I can't believe that I remember that. <laughs> so the, the actual therapy itself is a, 
gene therapy, which is delivered by virus. And so can you tell me a little bit more about the viral vector and how that is used to deliver the appropriate corrected copy of the gene? Sure. So we are using AV technology, so adeno-associated virus. And basically this system for delivery is hijacking common viruses and I'm and oversimplifying, you know, a little bit here just to, to, to kind of convey the delivery mechanism. But we're, you're basically hijacking viral systems that have a propensity and very well evolutionarily geared to uh, deliver their payload into human cells. Uh, so we can hijack these systems in ways that we remove some of the component, remove the components that would cause uh disease or, or ill effects in humans, and then load them up with our gene therapy payload. So, so in this case, we have patients have a loss of function mutation in RPGRIP1 inherited. They have those loss of function mutations inherited from both parents and both copies. So they don't have a functional RPGRIP1 protein. So we basically hijack this AV system to deliver a functional copy of RPGRIP1 into the retinal cells that we're targeting. And so that would be an injection into the retinal layer in the back of the eye, what we call photoreceptor cells, is what we're primarily targeting. And the, the AV that we're specifically using, there's a lot of different types that are used to deliver to different parts of the body. And that's dependent upon the biology of these viruses. So as you can imagine, you know, when we get viruses, they might affect different cells differently. And that's why you have different symptoms and in different parts of the body. And in this case, we are using ANK80. That's the AV capsid name that we're, we're using that was discovered in Luke Vandenberg's lab and some of the IP or intellectual property that Odilio was seeded with. And it has, ANK80 has some unique biology for, especially in the retinal space, it has uh, some advantageous biology compared to other capsids. It it, it seems to spread a bit further and deliver in a more targeted way to different cells within the eye that we can take advantage of and, and really optimize the therapeutic and hopefully lower the dose for delivery into patients. And so where is this uh, product in the pipeline right now? And, and where have you seen evidence of it actually working? So we Right now, our first program in RP Group One, this LCA6 program, is in late, what we call late stage preclinical testing. So it has been through the initial efficacy testing in uh, mouse models of the disease. And so we've shown it's effective. Um, we have, right now, we're moving into manufacturing the gene therapy at scale. And so it, that, that's an interesting process in and of itself and almost kind of separate from your usual disease biology and safety testing, but that will allow us to move into toxicity testing as our last and final phase of preclinical. So we're hoping in the next year to manufacture our, what we call our tox batch of the vector, and then move that into formal toxicity testing to really assess that safety question. So we, we've answered, we, do we have the genetic technology? Yes. Is it effective from what we've seen in mice? Yes. And we have done some earlier uh, preliminary safety testing and what we call feasibility testing just to make sure we can deliver it to the right place for the right period of time at the right period of time. So gene therapies, we really think of this as longer term 
hopefully permanent, but it, it, we're, we're not sure really where the science is going to land. We need longer trials and, and these first programs like Luxterna and Zolgensma, the first gene therapy programs, will get a much better picture of how long these gene therapies last. Is it decades? Is it multiple decades? Is it, is it forever? So that's a longer term question outside the scope of this program. But that initial feasibility and safety short-term testing is done and it looks very promising. We're getting RPGRP1 delivered into cells in the eyes. We're able to see that expression and we're excited about really bringing that to formal toxicity testing in the next year. Very cool. And the other one you're talking about is Usher syndrome. And you mentioned earlier, this is something that involves the cochlea. It's a vestibular issue for, so probably affects balance and a visual issue. So is this something that, so tell me first about the gene that is affected here and what it does. Sure. So there's different types of Usher syndrome, similar to LCA. So a lot of things fall under that Usher umbrella. There's different types that affect the visual system or the the impact on on hearing can be at different levels or onset can be at different points in time. So for Usher for the Usher syndrome type we're talking about, we are focused on delivering a functional copy of the Usher1C gene to patients, photoreceptors and and maybe some other cell types that really take advantage of that ANK80 bio, unique biology. We're right now still working that out with a, a set of collaborators in Europe that really know the fine biology of Ush1C. Ush1C profound, causes profound deafness from birth. Uh, many patients go on to have cochlear implants implanted within those first few years of life. And then they'll go on to start to have visual disturbances in, in early adolescence or as older children, you know, it, 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 we're starting to really understand that better now because we're, we're starting to have these genetic diagnoses earlier. So, so clinicians can start to track the onset of that visual disturbance before it starts to happen. So we're really starting to have some finite detail to pinpoint when, when we start to see the first functional impact as well as anatomical impact. And so we're, we're working, as I mentioned, with a group of collaborators out of primarily Europe who have expertise in Ush1C biology. And we are also working with a a pig genetic model that they developed because unfortunately we do a lot of mice in the drug development world, but the mice don't seem to have the visual disturbances. And so we're, we're hoping to have some exciting data in, in this pig model they've developed in the next year or so. And you mentioned that this is a gene therapy. It's going into the eye predominantly, but does this also correct the auditory and vestibular issues? So that would have to be, going back to the, the, eye, the advantages of the eye is it's relatively isolated. So we would have to do a separate targeting in the ear or in the vestibular area. So we're not working on that right now because the cochlear implants seem to, to it, it, they're not perfect, but they treat a lot of the auditory component and allow these patients to, to interact auditorily. I think what I'd love to see is if we had success in the eye is, is possibly come back to that question later on, or maybe work with, there's some really great auditory gene therapy companies who might be interested. So maybe we could collaboratively work in that space. There's also some interesting biology where it might be a different isoform that's working in the ear. And so we'd have to, to look at that in more detail. 
Yeah, that would that would explain the mouse model possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's part of the suspicion is why we have different effects in different animal systems. Well, you just described two different gene therapy approaches, and and that seems to be because the company's rooted in this uh, vector delivery system. But do you think Odelia is going to be working on maybe more traditional approaches uh, and other types of therapeutics? I think that's that's definitely in our future, and so the the focus on vision loss initially in our pipeline again comes back to our founder story the 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 ip we we're initially seeded with kind of drove us into these diseases luke's lab was initially working on the the groundwork for the rp grip 1 program and our other founder actually approached him about working in ashland c after i'd been with odelia for a bit cuz i thought you know there's some we didn't understand all of the biology, but we understood enough that we could start, I think, making inroads in this space. And so we'll, we'll see how that pans out in the next year. But our DNA really is rare diseases as, as a company. And so I think after we'll, ha- we'll have a lot of expertise in the vision loss space and we'll continue to be committed there and, and bring those programs forward. But I think we'll look we will look at different opportunities and other rare diseases outside of vision specifically as far as the the platform the therapeutic platform we are we we call ourselves agnostic so we're building up that base in the gene therapy world that will continue to grow but we look at opportunities as they come about in our bridge solutions program we're working with a few gene therapy programs actually no at the moment we are not working with any vision loss disorders all of those are either neurodevelopmental we have a few overgrowth disorders and they run the gamut of gene therapies, repurposing screens, ASOs or oligonucleotide approaches, silencing approaches. So I think those will continue to grow. Some of those will stay with those patient groups and will continue to support their efforts, but there might be opportunities that arise and might, there might be a, a bigger partnership where maybe those programs in the future come into our own pipeline as well. Well, Dr. Ashley Winslow, it's still nice to call you Dr. Ashley Winslow. If if listeners or a generous th- philanthropist wants to uh, find Odelia, where would they find you online or social media? Sure. So we you can find our website at odelia.org, O-D-Y-L-I-A.org. And you can find more information about our mission, uh, our pipeline, bridge solutions, as well as how to donate there. And and also check out, if you're interested, uh, we've recently launched the Odelia Library, which is, this is where we're trying to bring our learnings um, through Bridge Solutions, as well as our pipeline, also to a public space where people can learn from those resources. We just launched it in April, so it's early days, and, but we'll be building that library over time. So feel free to check, check it out. And then we're on most of the usual Uh, social media platforms these days, you can either find us as Odelia Therapeutics, two words, or Odelia TX, one word, depending on the platform. And we're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, formerly Twitter, I guess, X these days. And I think we're newly on Facebook as well. That'd always be Twitter to me. (laughs) Uh, It's it's hard. X is is 
too general and generic. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, it, it's. I I wanted to start Quitter a long time ago. <laughs> Q W I T T E R, and then just be all the people who used to be on Twitter. It's high time for that. So maybe I'll do that. Well, anyway, I digress. Right <laughs> well, Ashley, really, really, really nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. And let's do this again as the pipeline progresses, because I, I love the model and it's awesome to see rare diseases being treated. Would love that. Thank you, Kevin. And as always, thank you for listening to Talking Biotech Podcast. This is a great example of how biotechnology can be used to solve problems for people and people who maybe would be disregarded by a by the typical large pharmaceutical model. And here's an idea of not just innovation in the space of biotechnology to solve a problem, but innovation in the business space to find different ways to fund discovery to take care of people. I think it's totally cool. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.